This is No Love Live with Pastor Tim Warholic. Tim is the senior pastor of Paradise Calvary Chapel in Las Vegas, Nevada. Continuing our series through the Gospel of Matthew, Forsaken Kingdom. And, and it's not hard for me at all. It's not difficult for each one of these Bible studies as we're going through to see the focus on God's kingdom to the, to the point where we're, we might start to get a little tired of it. But that's only because of how challenged we are in, in the difference, the dichotomy of, of living in God's kingdom while we're here on earth and the pushback that we're going to get from the kingdom of this earth, the kingdom of this age, and how they're contrary to one another. The title of today's message is This Huge Contrast. And, and the thing that I love about Jesus, is he kind of makes it easy. Whatever the world holds in high esteem and in value, Jesus always turns everything on its head, flips it upside down, and shows that it's worthless. The value system of this world, Jesus turns it on its head. What people say is important, Jesus turns it on its head. And that's exactly what he's going to do as we look at not just the Beatitudes this morning, but the bigger picture of the Beatitudes, the, the verses beforehand and the verses after to kind of paint this, this picture, really to give us the full contrast. Whenever I'm studying the Bible, I like to look at contrast, a, a, a way that we can see more clearly what's trying to be communicated. Do you, do you understand what that means? Like in a photograph, when you, when you add contrast or you, you do something with contrast, it makes you look at it in a different light. It makes you look at it and see things that you wouldn't normally see before. I would say to you this morning that that's what God wants to do for us today. He wants us to look at things differently than the world looks at things, maybe than we would normally look at things. But this huge contrast is the title of today's message. And uh, again, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We can have somebody get one to you. But before we start and get into the Bible study, I want to let you know that we have our October calendars. Happy October, by the way. Yes, nobody's excited for fall but me. Pumpkin spiced church service. On the back side, you have some notes so that you can take notes and follow along with me. I have four areas that I want to focus on in the text this morning. And before we uh, get into it, let's turn to Matthew chapter 4. And I'm going to give you those four areas that we're going to adjust before we start so that you can follow along and let them sink in. Number one, if you're a note taker, Jesus is the light. You guys knew that. Number two, Jesus calls families. Number three, Jesus brings healing. Number four, amen, you are the light. 
You see, whenever we look at the Bible, we see how there, there's these, these things that, that consistently pop up. It is interesting how we look a little bit bigger than the Beatitudes this morning, and we see that we're going to start with light and we're going to end with light. It's a package deal that God wants to present to us this morning. So before we get into his word, let's go to him in prayer. Father, your word to us is precious. It is valuable, even more so than silver and gold. And we pray, God, that our hearts this morning would be in the proper place to receive all that you have for us, that that we would take your word, we would see its truth, and that we would be able to apply it to our lives because that is the most valuable thing that we can do with your word is apply it to our lives. So God, give us insight, give us wisdom and understanding that as we apply your word to our lives, that we would also see that fruit abound from our lives. Thank you for my brothers and sisters who you've brought here today. Again, just like Lauren said, Father, we lift up all those families that we know, I know of at least five families right now that are struggling with illness, and it is that season. Lord, we just pray that you touch them, you give them the strength to get through and that you would bless our time together in fellowship. Thank you for that worship, God, and that we can offer you the fruit of our lips. Thank you, God, for the application of your word. We want it to be an act of worship. And also, Father, we pray for the tithes and offerings, that they're not done in compulsion, but we would do it in worship to you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 4, point number 1. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison... He departed to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now here we have Jesus, when he hears that John has been put in prison, he goes to this new area, Galilee. We also know because of a different gospel that the reason that Jesus left Nazareth, where he's from, is because he was rejected. He was rejected as the Messiah there, and now he's moving on to go to these different areas. And he goes to the area of Galilee. Josephus writes about Galilee. If you don't know Josephus, he's a Jewish historian that we get a lot of information from. This area of Galilee right now is probably around 3 million people spread out in all these different villages of anywhere from 12 to 15,000 people per village. Now, Jesus is going into this heavily populated area, but Galilee area was not just known for its population. It was known for its saturation of Gentile population as well. This wasn't three million people of the Jews. This was some villages were Jewish and some were Gentile. And you're asking me, maybe in your head, this question right now, who cares? Why are you talking about Josebius and how many people live in the area of Galilee? This is why. Because if you were to consider the place where Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would come visit if he was coming into his kingdom, where do you think he would set up his base of operations? Because this is where he's going to set up his base of operations here in Capernaum in this area from this point on. Where do you think he'd set it up? Not here with the mixed masses. If he's the Messiah of the Jewish people, where would he go? 
He'd go to the capital. He'd go to the pride and joy. He'd go to Jerusalem and he'd set up camp and he'd say, this is who I am. You better receive me because I'm in charge now. That's what I do. But Jesus isn't me. Thank God. Jesus goes to the area that the people need him the most. Remember, it's not the healthy that need the physician, but those who are sick. So I take great comfort and satisfaction in seeing Jesus set up his base of operations here in Galilee. And he came to dwell in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. And, and I have to say, just because I got to figure out every service how to work in another Israel plug for you guys, all right? Because I'm still fresh off my last trip. There's a sign-up sheet at the front information station. We're going back to Israel next year. And if you were to ask me, which I'm sure you're super curious, right? If you were to ask me, Tim, where's your favorite place in Israel? I'd say, oh, it's so hard. So many favorite places. But one of my favorite places is Capernaum, where Jesus set up his base of ministry. And there's a lot of places all over Israel that you could go and you could think Jesus might have walked here. Jesus may have been here. But in Capernaum on the sea, you walk into the synagogue that Jesus taught at that's still standing you go over to a fenced-off area where Peter's mother-in-law's house was that he went and healed her at. And you can take the steps. You can walk from the synagogue when the scripture says that they left to go to the house so that he could touch her. And you can take the steps and walk the path right down to where Peter's house is. And you can kind of see everything come to life. But guess what? In Capernaum, if you go there today, there's not 15,000 people. It's not a bustling village buzzing with news of this man who's come and is healing and touching people's lives. It's kind of a desolate place. Capernaum, if you remember with me, if we look forward a few chapters, was one of the villages that Jesus cursed because of their rejection of him. And it was Capernaum and two other places in the area that to this day lie desolate. If there's anything there, there's a hotel for people to travel through and to look at the sights. Because let's make no mistake, God's word is true. And Jesus is the word of God. And when he says something's going to happen, he said, if Sodom and Gomorrah would have seen the signs that I did in you, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. What's the, what's the emphasis for us here? God, what do you have to speak to us and how should we respond? This is a word that he has for us today, not just the people back then, but something he wants to continue to speak to us today. Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Israel, the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles. Those people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. It's the contrast. We're talking about contrasts, right? 
this big contrast? What's the greatest contrast to darkness? Easy peasy. Light. Jesus recognizes an area that's identified by its darkness. Sound familiar? (laughs) We kind of live in that kind of place too. I still, to this day, I can't believe it. Just in Israel, when we're in Israel, people say, you know, hey, where, where are you guys from? We're, we're like, we're from Las Vegas. Or I'm like, I'm from Las Vegas. And they're like, do you live in a casino? I'm like, heck yeah, I live in a casino. Duh, everybody lives in casinos in Las Vegas. And we sell fireworks on the side of the road for our businesses. No, bro, I don't live in a casino. I live in a house that's built on top of the casino. Duh. We have the privilege and opportunity of receiving the light of God into our lives so that we can now, this is how we're going to end, so spoiler alert, so that we can now be that contrast that God wants us to be. We're not supposed to look like, we're not supposed to identify with the world. And when we look at contrast, again, like through in the, in the, sense of a photograph, contrast draws out certain qualities of the picture that we didn't necessarily see before. That's why you have those awesome filters on your Instagram account. Like, oh, that filter looks good. It makes my eyes look so pretty. That's how I judge if I post a picture or not. You are the contrast. You are the one in the picture of this world that God wants to draw out and and even put in more color so that you look differently so that this world can respond the way that it should to those people who are identified by his calling. Those people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. The place that Jesus would go, this place where the people needed him the most. From that time, verse 17, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, if I go back to when I was a younger believer and people would say to me, you're part of God's kingdom. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. I don't know. Maybe you can identify with that. Maybe you would still say, clarify for me what it means for me to be part of the kingdom of heaven. Here I am on earth and I'm having to deal with the issues and problems of people and things of this earth. Here's the key. When you have a kingdom minded thought process, when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you will not react or necessarily even respond because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. You will not react or necessarily respond to the things in this world like the rest of the world responds. They used to say to me, you know, being part of God's kingdom means that Jesus is your king and you're submitted to him and and he's your boss. You do what he says. Still kind of vague a little bit for me. But, But what's more clear is that identifying with Jesus as my king and being part of the heavenly kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, starts to remove me from this present earthly kingdom that sometimes I can, because of their influence, sometimes my my process of thinking can get subject to them. It can start to make sense. You know, like the old saying, and I'm sure I'm going to ruffle some feathers 
because somebody always gets mad at me when I say this, and I always hear about it. So if it's you, I receive it. It's okay. We can talk later, okay? I, I hear Christians say, I'm not called to be a doormat. I hate to tell you, but you're pretty much called to be a doormat. What does that mean? It means by responding or reacting to somebody the way that the world would in the mentality of you can't treat me like that, Jesus says, love your enemies. Doormat. Jesus says, process the, the, the fact that you're a citizen of, of the heavenly kingdom, process things differently. Process by the fact that you are called to be different and that your difference is the contrast that the rest of the world is going to see. Hey, I did this to you and you didn't respond or react the way that I thought you would. Why is that? Well, we'll get, that, we'll get to that in a moment. Jesus says, and he preaches, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 18, and Jesus walked by the sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Now, these two examples of Jesus calling his disciples, I really love how Matthew presents this to us. Because in other gospels, we know that, that Jesus had already been functioning in ministry. He had, he had already been doing things. He had already called other disciples. But he specifically lists these four guys, and take note with me in the next section, the other guys. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And these are the four disciples this morning that Matthew wants to highlight, take note of. Does that mean that Jesus didn't have any other disciples? No. This is a, from his perspective, there's a reason that he's focusing on, four, on these four. And what did they have in common, church? What did they have in common? They were brothers. They were fishermen, but they were brothers. He called two sets of brothers. And there's, in my experience in ministry and in life, there, there's, there's some things that make life fun, and there's some things that just make life really fun. And I can tell you, one of the things that makes life really fun is doing it together with my brothers in the Lord. Last weekend, we had our men's breakfast fellowship. We had a bunch of guys come out. We ate food, which whenever you do a men's function, you have to do, just to make that clear. So we ate food, physical food. We ate spiritual food. We, we dove into the word for a little bit, and we had some, some good fellowship to the degree that there was a brother that texted me yesterday morning and said, hey, I'm here for the next men's breakfast. Where is everybody? And I loved, I loved that I got that message because I was like, man, he wanted to engage in that fellowship again a week later. And I was like, oh man, we don't do that every, every week. It's, it's once in a while that we do that. But all the rest of you all were still in bed sleeping while he was trying to have fellowship with you down here at church. There's something special to be said when you can dwell together in unity with your brethren. And when we start to, especially as men, ladies, we have words for you all the time too. Just got to speak to the men real quick for a second. When we as men start to separate ourselves, 
to isolate ourselves, to insulate ourselves. We prohibit other men from being a part of our life. We stunt the spiritual growth that God wants to bring to our life through the iron sharpening iron. And that's what you have to do. We're camping and my ki- I got my kids an ax. And there's this log that is about three feet in circumference. It's huge. And, and you know, I never want to hear when we're camping that you're bored. So as soon as I think that you're starting to lose interest in creation, all of creation that God gave at your disposal right now, I said to one of my sons, I said, listen, if you can take this hatchet, take this axe, it's actually an axe, it's not a hatchet, it's a big full length axe, and you can cut through that log, I'll give you a hundred bucks. He said, are you serious? I said, dead serious. You've got 24 hours to cut through that, to cut through that thing. And you would have thought that I promised him something, I don't know, a lot worth more than a lot than a hundred dollars. And he's over there, boom, boom, boom. And then the other kids come and say, can we do it too? I'm like, listen, I said it to him. I'll let the two of them do it. And they're going, they're getting frustrated and they're taking breaks and they're stopping. And then, and then before you know it, I see that the ax over there lying on the ground. And I said, hey, what happened, guys? And they're like, it's too hard. And I said, I, I, and I, said, I didn't say it was going to be easy, but do you want the hundred bucks or not? And it reinvigorated them. <laughs> Absolutely. Were you kidding? I'm not kidding. So they go back and they keep going. They're like, can you help us? And I said, I'll give it a few swings. I'll show you how it's done. <laughs> so I pick up the ax and I notice that they had been so wailing away on this log that they had they had worn down the edge of the axe. And I said, well, you're getting kind of dull. You guys are missing. You're hitting rocks. It's going to cause you to work longer and harder without a sharp axe. And they said, well, what do we do? And I said, we got to go to the hardware store and get a file. We got to file the edge to make it sharp again so we can keep going. So we went down to the hardware store. We got a file. And there by the campfire with the two boys, I'm showing them how to file the edge of the axe to make it nice and sharp. And that's what I want for you men. I want you to be sharp so that when time comes to work, you can produce something worthy of your calling. And you're not just a thick piece of metal smacking a surface over and over and over again. And that's not going to happen unless you surround yourselves with other men that can put that pressure on you to sharpen you, to cause you to be in a better place. I love that Jesus called brothers. And I love that, I love that not only did he call brothers, but these brothers throughout the next three years of their ministry with Jesus were arguing that they were going to be the two best in the kingdom. If that's not like brother, if that's not a brother, what is, right? You know, like, yo, me and you, go get mom. Tell her to talk to Jesus. We're on the right and left hand of Jesus' throne, right? And she did it because we're going to be the best. Sometimes I kind of hope, I kind of wish we had that perspective. We poke fun at them and we make jokes and it's funny. But are we pushing each other to be the best that we can be in fulfilling our calling. We just kind of lackadaisical. If it works out, then fine. If not, then that's cool too. No, not only does he call brothers, but this is the thing I love about Jesus and the, and the kingdom of God is that he calls families. 
Do you know how many times I've seen somebody, uh, one person get saved in a family of non-believers and that person crying out to God for the salvation of their brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and how over the years, sometimes it doesn't happen immediately. It doesn't happen overnight. Sometimes it's months. Sometimes it's years. Sometimes it's decades, 20, 30 years. But this is what we see. We see the gospel, the kingdom of God coming into a family's life because God cares not just for the individual, but for the family as a whole. I love Cornelius, the Roman centurion, right? You guys remember, I talked about this story a couple times, that Cornelius is a Roman centurion. He's at the city of Caesarea on the sea, which is another place we went to when we went to Israel. Sign up sheet. And he has a divine vision from God and the angel appears to him and says, there's a special message from God that he wants you to hear. Send to Joppa for a man named Peter. And he didn't go there. He was obedient. He sent a messenger. Somebody went to go get Peter, brings Peter back to Caesarea on the sea where he was posted. And what did it say after three, four, five days of one or two days journey there, one or two days journey back? They're waiting for a divine message from God. Are you guys excited? They're waiting for a divine message from God. You look a little more excited that time. And what, uh, what's happening when Peter arrives? Do you remember the story in the book of Acts? What's happening with the centurion Cornelius? He's gathered together his whole family and all of his friends and extended, and they're waiting there to hear what God has to say. I'm so grateful that, that, that the angel didn't say to Cornelius, hey, you go to Joppa and talk to Peter. And that he received salvation and understanding of what the kingdom of God was as an individual. But they were there, gathered together in the house. I just can't. I would love to see the replay of that. This house is, is bursting. All these people are waiting. He has been sharing with them his faith in God to the degree that they're all kind of in the same position waiting to hear what God has to say to them. Peter gets there. You guys know the story. He starts to preach the gospel. And then when he's done preaching the gospel, he says, whoever wants to open your heart and receive Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, go ahead and raise your hand up in the air so I can pray for you. Is that what he does? He does an altar call. Everybody that wants to receive Jesus, come down to the front. And I'm making light of this a little bit. You know why? Because this story is powerful. It says, as they were listening to the word, the Holy Spirit fell upon them the Gentile Pentecost. And it wasn't because of, of something that they did. It wasn't because they were called to do it. It's because they understood the concept of the gospel. It had traveled to their heart and their hearts had received Jesus before they were even given an opportunity. The Holy Spirit falls on the family. And I don't know about you guys, but I don't want to be a spirit-filled man. I don't want to be a spirit-filled Christian. I don't want to be a spirit-filled father. I don't want to be a spirit-filled husband. I want to be a man that, that leads a spirit-filled family. 
And that the the decisions that I make and the direction of my walk with the Lord so affects my wife and my children that we as a whole are looked at differently rather than just me. But it's important for me to be prepared, to be sharpened so that God can use me to that degree, so that God can use us, you to that degree. Point number two If you miss point number one, Jesus is the light. Point number two, Jesus calls families. And something that we have tried to cultivate, and we hear it said in churches probably here and there, but something that we do try to cultivate on an organic level here is that that we're connected to each other, that we're a family, that you guys can have conversations with each other. You can ask for prayer requests. You can not be scared to be sharpened, okay? Not run out as soon as you have the opportunity but being called to a family as a family, you can be a contrast to the way that the, the, the world looks at families. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Number three, Jesus brings healing. This is part of his signature in the coming of the kingdom of God. As I was reading through these verses and praying, the Lord put something on my heart that somebody here needs to hear this word. Jesus brings healing. And you've questioned or pushed back against this idea because you are still struggling with hurt and affliction that you have expected or wanted God to heal, and it seems like he's lingering in that healing. Let me say to you this morning that God is for our healing, and it's part of being part of his kingdom. But healing sometimes doesn't look the the way that we want it to look. How many of you have ever looked forward to going to the hospital or to the doctor for a procedure? Go ahead and raise your hand. How many people love going in for procedures? Do you know why nobody's raising their hand? Number one, because you're embarrassed because you're a weirdo. Number two, procedures are uncomfortable. Procedures can cause pain. I had a procedure last year. Was not looking forward to it will not be going back again. If you break your arm, you're required to go to the doctor. Why? So we can say, yeah, it's broken. Well, we can see it's broken. Like we don't need an x-ray. Like it's, he's got two elbows, doctor. Not so that we can say that it's broken, but so that he can do what? Slap a cast on it. So he can tell us what kind of herbs that we need to take for healthy bones so that our bones don't break again. What does he do? Church, you guys know what he does. What does he do? He resets the arm, which is super painful. I mean, in theory. He pulls it out, 
and shoves it back into where it's supposed to be. And in the movies and stuff, they put little pieces of wood or cloth or stuff shuff in their stuff in their mouth so that they you know, don't hurt people's ears when they're screaming. And sometimes part of the process of healing is going through the thing that hurts so that it can be set back in place and the healing can be complete, not partial. You don't want to leave a broken arm broken because it's not going to heal correctly. And the way that it does heal is going to give you a disfigurement for the rest of your life. When I was a teenager, after I graduated high school, I, I took a, 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 f- a fireman's course. I wanted to be a volunteer firefighter. And as I was going through this course, there was the medical side of it. And they went over how burn victims are required to have the skin that was burned. They're required when they go in to have the skin scrubbed off. I know you guys are wincing and squirming in your seats. But unless they get the skin off, you can't begin to start to properly heal. And sometimes God sees things every time that we need healing. If it's not divine immediate healing and he wants to bring healing, he's got to scrub that dead stuff off. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to go have my arm reset. I get a cut, I'm picking off the scab. If it's deep, I'll poke it to see if I can see the bone. It's not healthy. It's weird. Stop messing with things that God wants to bring healing to so that you can become whole once again. But if you keep poking it, if you keep prodding it, it's going to take a lot longer or it might not heal at all. And you know what happens? If it gets infected, you guys know what happens? It starts to, an infection is something that kills the muscle and the nerves in the, in the area. And before you know it, it'll, it'll start to spread. An infection can spread through your whole body and end up killing you. Sometimes I talk to people that have been so inflicted that they feel like their illness or their infliction has never been addressed. Healing hasn't come and they feel like they're going to die. God has the ability and he has the willingness to prepare the wound to bring you through the process of healing. And sometimes it requires a procedure or two. And the question is, how come God hasn't healed me yet? My question for you would be, do you really want to get healed? Do you really want to submit to the great physician to address the issue, because I don't know about you, but sometimes I don't want the issue addressed. I'm like, let's just leave that undressed, (laughs) unaddressed, undressed, not tended to, because I'm more comfortable that way. But in reality, true healing can't come unless that process is started, and oftentimes it is painful. Make no mistake, God does healing immediate as well. I've, I've met people who were healed on the spot. I've met other people like Paul who had an infliction in the flesh who said that he cried out three times that it would be delivered. And the response from God was that it was a process of healing. Isn't that, I mean, ultimately what the response was? My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. My strength is made perfect in weakness. You have to go through this right now, Paul. This is what I want for you. 
but God, you healed that guy. You did that in that lady's life. You did that over there. And he says, they're, yeah, they're different. What about, what about you? What about me? What is that process going to look like? But know this, and be rest assured, church, be rest assured that he's still in the business of healing. And then when I have people ask me, how come God doesn't heal people like you did in the New Testament and in Acts? I'm like, how often have you placed yourself in a position to be healed like the way they were in the book of Acts or the New Testament? How often are you going down to the hospital and praying over people? Because in my mind, unless you're doing that, you're not going to see anybody be healed. I mean, I could be crazy. You're not going to countries that don't have health care or people who are dying of disease out in the bush because you're scared you'd go there and get it too. Am I lying? I mean, what part are we willing to engage in God with on the pro- in the process of seeing other people get healed? Not just in the comfortable, sterile environment. I know this can be offen- offensive too. I-, I understand that, a little preface. In the comfortable, sterile environment of the hospital room and the hospital bed with the insurance coverage and all the other things. Not saying that God can't use that too, but us, us trying as hard as we can to be in the most comfortable place and then point the finger at God and say, why don't you heal us anymore? And I can tell you that I've seen all of the extremes being part of God's kingdom. I've seen immediate healing in foreign lands. I've seen the process and progress of healing. And it's always because God desires his people to be whole. But God isn't going to minister to a physical need unless it has some spiritual implications for you. You can can go meditate on that a little bit. He's not gonna minister to your physical needs unless there's a spiritual implication. In fact, look at this. You like contrasts? We're talking about contrasts. What did that say, that last section? It says at verse 25, great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Great crowds. My question, the contrast would be, my question is, where did all these people go? Jesus died alone. He was at the cross alone. Don't you think some lepers or some people who are physically touched by Jesus would be there being like, that guy healed me. I mean, I know he's being crucified right now, but he changed my life. He touched my physical infirmity and now I'm healed. And nobody was there. Now, I don't know. Obviously, in this next section, Jesus did have spiritual implications for touching them and gathering them together. But in my experience... If we are looking to God just for the healing, forego the spiritual lesson. It's not the best place to be. And we might not have that touch of healing because we we don't really want the deeper meaning of the healing to take place in our lives. I still want to be upset. I still want to be mad. I hope I can, I can, I want to share this with you because it just kind of drives the point home. A dear, precious sister in the Lord from the first service, I said the same thing to them because I believed it was for both of us, both services, texted me after the service and she said, I was just praying this morning whether I, I was thinking and praying about whether I wanted to be healed or not. Literally, I was praying this morning, do I really want to be healed from this infirmity? And then the, you talked about that in the message today. And if she thought it, and I've thought it, then there have to be other people as well that said, is it worth the healing 
to let go of these other things that have happened, to move on from them, and to be made whole the way that God desires instead of just the way I desire. Number one, Jesus is the light. Number two, Jesus calls families. Number three, Jesus brings healing. Chapter five, and seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he had seated his disciples, came to him. When he'd opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed, blessed, blessed. This is the Beatitudes. And somebody commented that it's called the Beatitudes because it's the attitude that you should have. It's the attitude you should be living in. And what I wanted to do is something a little different. So I do apologize up front. You probably haven't heard a Bible study like this, but in, 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 the, in the spirit of the title of the message, I want to look at the Beatitudes this morning in contrast to what Jesus is saying so we can get a fresh picture, a fresh look at what he really means by making these eight statements that we're going to look at, okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to go through and meditate on what he's saying, and then we're going to look at and compare what Jesus says to the way that the world lives, and it's really easy because if Jesus does things opposite the world, it's going to be an easy conclusion to come to. If this is what he's saying the kingdom of citizens are going to look like, then, then it's pro probably pretty, pretty easy to see the way that they live. Look at he opened his mouth and taught them, and it's because he had been teaching them by his actions. Now take special note because he's speaking. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I, I say this all the time. Every time I come across an emphatic bless, I always say my favorite word to translate into uh, from blessed, another way that it can be translated is what? Do you guys know? Happy. That's what the word means. It can also mean uh, satisfied, but it's not happy in the worldly sense of happy. It's, it's, it's complete. It's blessed. It's happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And take note, it starts, the first of these eight, they're all connected to each other, but it starts with the focus being on kingdom wholeness, kingdom happiness. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So what's the contrast to blessed is the poor in spirit? The way the world says it, they would say, blessed are the proud in spirit, for they rule their own kingdom. I came up with all these, but, but this is the thing that the world does, isn't it? They say, take pride, be proud, put your name out there. Blessed are, blessed are the proud. For they rule their own kingdom. I was just talking to somebody the other day. I've traveled all around the world. We were talking about America and how people put such pride in being American and, and all that stuff, which is, it is, we've talked about it the last couple of weeks. It is what it is. But, but if you travel and you get to know anybody in a foreign country, it's, it's, it's really hilarious to me that everywhere I've been, they all think, they all have their own claim to fame. They all think that they're the best country. <laughs> no matter how big they are or how small they are, they're like, we did this, we're the best. And it's because of this. And, and, and there's a fight even in some of the countries whether famous people came from their country or not <laughs> because it somehow elevates them in the esteem of the rest of the world. 
oh, oh, Nikola Tesla came from your country? That means that you guys should all own Tesla cars because you're all because we're all brilliant. Every country has that pride steps up and it's Jesus that comes in to directly oppose that opinion of pride and he says, "Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize their need, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." Number 2, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. How many of you have mourned before? God's word to us that if we mourn, that we're going to be comforted, we're going to be taken care of. What's the opposite of mourning? Well, this is what I have for number two, our contrast. Blessed are those who rage, for they comfort themselves. They say, this is what happened. I'm not happy with it. I'm not okay with it. And this is what I'm going to do because of it to make myself feel better about it, to vindicate myself, to justify myself. Why was that person taken from me? Why did this relationship get shattered? How can I respond for my own benefits? Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. The difference between holding on to something and taking care of business. Mourning is letting it go. There's a process to mourning. Any grief counselor will tell you there's a process to mourning. And God's heart for us is that we would be mourners, that we would be let letter goers so that he can come alongside and, and comfort us so that we're not comforting ourselves, so that we're not getting comfort from other things so that he can comfort us. This is what it looks like to be part of God's kingdom. Number three, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Have you ever looked up what the synonym is for meek? Because I have to admit to you, I was struggling a little bit. Like, meek, you know, what's, a, what's the, the first thing that pops up when you type in um, the uh, uh, antonym? Did I say synonym? Okay, antonym, thank you, of meek. The first thing that pops up is impatient. So this is my anti-beatitude. Blessed are the impatient. They take the earth by force. And the earth is represented in the collective what I want from life, what I want from this earth. I'm not going to be meek about it. I'm not going to wait on God. I'm not going to wait around and let people do what they want to do. I'm going to take charge. There's impatience, a not willingness to submit I'm going to take charge. I'm going to take care of myself and I'm going to take what I want. I'm going to take the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. A contrasting beatitude for number four is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for power through corruption, for they shall climb the ladder of success. Now, I know people who have lost their jobs because of their hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, they're in a company, they're in a position where they just said, I just, I cannot do this anymore. It's, it's, it's morally wrong. I can't be a part of it and I'm not going to do it. And an overseer or a boss says, hey, if you don't do it, we can find somebody that does and you know what that means. And then you have to make a choice. Okay, well, I'll do it because I need to provide for my family or people in a really difficult 
position when we, when we actually qualify it. Like their hunger and thirst for righteousness is so great that God is going to fill it, even though it looks difficult, the position that they're in is going to call them to compromise. But when they don't compromise, when they stand as citizens of God's kingdom, that would be filled instead of climbing the ladder of success, taking power through corruption to execute man's will. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Number five, the contrast is, blessed are the merciless, for they execute their own vengeance. The merciless. Isn't that the picture of somebody who's merciless in your, in your brain? Somebody who's merciless? I'm gonna, again, I'm gonna take things in my charge and I'm going to execute judgment based on what somebody has done to me. You know, mercy is not receiving something that you do deserve. And I love how that's part of the gospel that we've been shown not only grace, unmerited favor by God through Jesus Christ, but that we've been shown mercy because we deserve something far less, something more painful. But the, but the world says, merciless, be merciless, execute your own vengeance, don't wait around for God, take things into your own hands. They deserved it, they did this to you. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Number six, our contrast is blessed are the corrupt in heart, for they see things they, the way that they want to see them. They see things their own way. The way of the world through corruption over and over again. The way of God, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is one of my favorite contrasts. What's the opposite of a peace bringer? Somebody who brings peace or peacemaker. Warholics! Yeah, I love you. That was awesome. War bringers! War bringers! Because they're warholics. For they will take what they want at the cost of life. They say, you've wronged me. This is what the position that you've put me in. You forced me to do this. Now I'm going to execute judgment on you. I'm about bringing war instead of bringing peace. There's that verse in Romans that so impacted my life at a certain time in my life. that says, for all ways that is possible to you, for, for whatever means you can do, be at peace with all men. We were talking about the October 1st, and we prayed for the families and the people on this past Wednesday. One of the verses that the Lord gave me for that service two years ago when this happened was overcome evil with good. Evil things are going to happen. Our response to evil things happening are to overcome evil with good. That's what God's called us to do. War bringers, peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Number, or verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We started with the kingdom of heaven in the first one. We end with the kingdom of heaven. And the contrast to that, the, the, what the world says is blessed or happy are those who are persecuted for corruption's sake. They will figure a way out so they can continue in their own ambitions or estimation. You guys hear about this stuff happening all over the world all the time. Like this corruption's exposed, and then there's this huge effort to cover up or to make happen, make what happened look like less than it actually is. Are they being persecuted for righteousness' sake, or are they being persecuted for corruption's sake? For righteousness' sake, their kingdom, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11. Blessed are, are you when they revile and persecute you, say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Every time I come across the word reward in the Bible, I circle it like 20 times because I like rewards. I want to get a reward, right? And the Bible teaches us, teaches me, that, that if I'm persecuted for doing the right thing, if I'm persecuted for, for telling the truth, that I'm going to have a reward in heaven because of it. And look what he says. It says, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And a couple weeks ago, we talked about the gift of prophecy. What is the gift of prophecy and how does it still function in the church today? Prophecy is speaking God's word. It's speaking absolute truth. And when we speak truth, when we speak God's word, it's most of the time, if not all the time, going to be contrary to what the world wants to hear. And when we speak it and when we say it, the response is going to be persecution on us, but, but the Lord's word to us is, it's okay, you're going to receive a, a reward because of it, which goes into this, this thought process, this idea, look, of the next few verses Wrapping things up, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. If you're about truth, if you're about speaking truth, if you're about being okay with being persecuted because you're a speaker of truth, not only will you have a reward in heaven, but it's actually what your job is to do. You're the salt. What does salt do? Salt preserves. And I think that it's pretty radical that we can say this morning today that the reason that you and I, the reason that we are still here on this earth right now is because of the church. In the sense that you have been called to be the salt of the world and God is reserving his judgment because things haven't gotten as bad as they absolutely could have because if there wasn't anything to preserve, God would have wiped these guys out a long time ago. Could you imagine? I would have wiped them out a long time ago. And I'm not even God. God would have wiped them out a long time ago, but there's a preservation that happens even to this point so that we can experience a right relationship with God. We can be part of his kingdom. And this is what our, our part is. Our part is to be the salt. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. 
and it gives light to those who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they, glor- that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Oh, I love that in these verses, that we could have just focused on those Beatitudes and talked to it at length. But here we have this, this snapshot, this bigger picture of Jesus, the light of the world, coming to the darkest area and setting up camp there. And then ending kind of wrapping the whole thought together with saying directly, point number four, you are the light. You'll be so affected by a relationship with God, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, walking in the Spirit, that you will look differently. You will look like a contrast to the, West, to the way that the rest of the world does things. In review, finishing up, here's our four points again so that you can consider them. Number one, Jesus is the light. Jesus doesn't call us to be or to do anything that he has not already done, is, or was willing to do. Jesus is the light. Number two, Jesus calls families. Pray for your families. Pray for your brothers and sisters. Pray for your fathers and mothers and grandparents and aunts and uncles. Number three, Jesus brings healing. Jesus brings healing. Number four, number four, you are the light. Amen? Father, we thank you for this this precious calling that you've given us. We are kingdom citizens. We want to identify more with you and with your kingdom than with any kingdom on this earth. We want, to know, we want to know, Father, we, we, we ask that we would be able to understand to a, to a deeper degree, even through today's study, what that looks like in our life. How we can better represent you on a daily, regular basis and take hold of and seize this precious calling of citizenship that you've given to us. I pray specifically, I ask, Father, specifically for my brothers and sisters who are struggling with an illness, struggling with healing, even may have asked questions of if you're willing to heal them. God, you are willing. We know you're willing. We just want to make sure that we're willing also. Please move in hearts. Touch those people, God, that so desperately need you to start that process and see them through. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.